welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. I'm your host, Jim Johnson, and I'll take you behind the brands and we'll look through the barbed wire at some of the most iconic ranches in the world. So sit back, kick off your boots, and prepare to be entertained as I introduce you to those captivating stories from the legends of the brands and where there's no barbed wire that's going to hold us back. Welcome back to another episode of Brands and Barbed Wire. Today's episode of Brands and Barbed Wire is one you definitely don't want to miss. I have the honor to sit down with good friend and accomplished writer, Eric Grant. We learn about Eric, what inspires him, and his successful business, The Grant Company. Most of all, we hear about his incredible new book about the life of famous Western artist, Hollis Williford. If you're like me and maybe weren't familiar with Hollis or his work, you will be after this podcast. And stay tuned until the end for a special offer from Eric. I'm sure you will enjoy getting to know Eric and Hollis in this interview. So let's jump right in. Eric Grant, welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. Thank you, Jim. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. Uh, we've known each other for a long time and and uh, worked together some uh, several years ago. And, and I've been wanting to get you on the podcast and I can't wait. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it looks like uh, you're having a lot of success with this thing. So congratulations. I'm, I'm excited to be being on the show. Yeah, thanks. I, uh, I appreciate it. I'm often humbled with uh, how many listeners we have and stuff like that. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So Eric, um, you know, I know you and, and lots of people around the industry know you, but uh, for maybe the ones that don't, uh, give us a little uh, background on Eric Grant, uh, kind of where you came from and your um, uh, family and then your interest in the cattle business and, and maybe some of those contributions. Sure. Yeah, I uh, grew up in, uh, in Colorado and uh, kind of split time between living in town and being out on my grandpa's ranch. My uh, my dad was a was a minister, so we moved around quite a bit. Um, but the one anchor in my life I had was was the ranch. And from the time I was about ten or eleven, I'd get on the trailways bus. Can't believe I did that. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't you wouldn't dream of putting a kid on a on a trailways bus this day, these days. But uh, every spring break, every Christmas break, every summer vacation, I was on that bus heading back over to the to the ranch. I didn't like living in town. And uh, my grandpa, John Hill, was a uh, well-known Hereford breeder. I had registered cattle and some and commercial cattle near Grand Junction on the west side of the mountain. And uh, learned a, a lot about him, particularly or about life from him and, uh, you know, um, entrepreneurship and, and the business itself and learned about stewardship and taking care of cattle. And, and probably the biggest thing was just learning a love and appreciation for that way of life. And uh, so from the time I was about 12, I, I knew I had interest in writing <clears throat> and photography and uh, decided at you know very early age that what I really wanted to be was the next editor of the Hereford Journal magazine. And, uh, and so kind of set out on that course, uh, went to Bethany College out in Lindsburg, Kansas, and got a degree in English literature and and the reason I went to Bethany was because the old Simmental Shield magazine was published there. And I thought, well, gosh, I can get an internship there and do the other things I want to do. So I, <clears throat> I did, um, did an internship with them, I think, in 1985. So I'm coming up on close to 40 years in, in ag communications. But uh, I uh, 
after a short stint with the Simmental Shield, um, wound up at the National Cattlemen's Association as an assistant editor on their two magazines, and uh, then to work, went to work for the American Solar Association in the early 90s for a couple of years running their magazine, and then um, decided in 1993 that I'd go out as a freelance writer and photographer and, and wrote for a lot of really good magazines. Uh, you know, the magazine business was was pretty hot back then, and and uh, wrote for American Cowboy magazine, which kind of got me into the consumer marketplace, and then uh, Farm Journal, Beef Today Magazine, and a few others for about uh, 15 years, and then wound up at the American Angus Association, eventually as their director of public relations, where we uh, launched television on the I Am Angus uh, TV series and the Angus Report and a few other things. And uh, then in 2014, became president of Angus Media and uh, had a team of about 40 people there and, you know, produced, as you know, a lot of uh, sale books. Uh, at the time, I think we did about 450 sale catalogs and the Angus Journal, uh, Angus Beef Bulletin, plus two TV shows. We we really had our hands full, but had a great crew over there. Um, and then in 2017, I left the American Angus Association to start Grant Company. And uh, Grant Company is based in St. Joseph, Missouri. We have about 13 people working for us, and uh, we are in, in the business of creating content for our clients. Um, content creation is what we do, whether it's photography, video, television, writing, magazine production, all those kinds of things. So that's what I've been doing ever since. So, Eric, the it started back back and work forward maybe um so the grant company is it is it predominantly ag and cattle based or do you do some other work for other other entities yeah probably about 90 percent of what we do would be in 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 ag although we've uh, broken out of that a little bit uh, here and there uh, but our bread and butter is is ag we've gotten more into the dairy side of uh, things so we've our, our our longest and most important client is the Holstein Association out of Brattleboro Vermont and CEO John Meyer has been really really great to us and he was actually the first person to call when I left Angus and we've been with them ever since but we we produce a TV show for Holstein Association now and it took some of the things that we learned while I was at Angus um, and apply those to uh, the Holstein uh, public relations and communications. And that's been, been really great, but we work, you know, with clients that, you know, the size of uh, some of the large animal health companies all the way down to, you know, farms and ranches that just need help uh, with their marketing of their seed stock. And so um, going back to your, to your grandfather, how do you know when he arrived in Colorado and, and, and got into Herefords kind of how, how far back does that go? He was actually uh, born in Idaho. His dad kind of had restless feet and kind of moved around. Uh, there was a lot of logging going on in northern Idaho and uh, wound up up there. He was born there in the mid-19-teens, uh, I think around 1915, if I remember correctly. Uh, but when he was nine, uh, they moved back to western Colorado. Um, his family was there uh, near a town called Colburn. And, uh, you know, Hereford, Shorthorns, those were the two predominant breeds in the West at that time. And, and uh, but I think his interest in the, in the registered business really didn't happen until probably late 50s, 1960s. But his, he had a very, very close friend and a gentleman by the name of Ferry Carpenter. And uh, a lot of folks in Hereford circles would, would remember Ferry's name. 
But uh, Ferry was a predominant, uh, kind of one of the founder. He was the, one of the founders of the Beef Improvement Federation, and he was really big on performance and kind of didn't like the selection for the small belt buckle cattle. And, uh, you know, it was very, very philosophical. Um, he was actually um, the director of the Bureau of Land Management and the, and the FDR administration and, and wrote the Taylor Grazing Act for the public land that governed, uh, still governs the public um, lands grazing out west. So he's a very prominent individual. He's a lawyer, interesting cat. I I met him in the early 80s, shortly before he died. Uh, but but Grandpa built that herd off of those carpenter genetics. And these were big performance-oriented cattle. And, uh, you know, the carpenter would take his cattle up to Midland Bull Test in the 70s. And I think they dominated that test for, for many years. Um, but they were big, growthy cattle. I've got a giant uh, picture on my... Uh, on my wall here, my grandpa standing in the middle of, of uh, his herd of Hereford cattle. And these, you know, these cattle would look good today. You know, they're, they were relevant and, and, but different than, than, than what people were selecting for back then. So when you said you, you kind of knew from an early age, you wanted to be a writer. I mean, what, what kind of inspired that? Do you, do you know, or is it just, you like to read and, and you thought, man, this is something I want to do. I kind of give us a glimpse into what, how that got started. Yeah, I, in a way, it was a little bit influenced by my grandpa. You know, he was an old style guy. People back in the around the turn of the century, I'm talking about the 1800s to the 1900s, they spent a lot of time reading. Grandpa could recite poetry from from memory. I mean, he was a very literary person, uh, classically trained. I mean, they in elementary school they they taught you the classics. You know, he taught me kind of at least sparked the interest in in writing, but it was. It was when the magazines would arrive in the mailbox, you know, the Hereford Journal, Simtal Shield. I couldn't wait to run out to the to the mailbox and see um, to see the you know to pick up the magazines and go through the ads and you know the old Hereford Journal, the the Herd Reference Edition in the summertime, that July issue was you know probably a thousand pages. I mean, it was huge. I mean, there's people all over the country that still have those people stored, you know, in their libraries and in their basements and. Um, but I love going through page by page and looking at the ads and thinking about how they wrote the copy, looking at the photos, and then also reading the articles. And and uh, so I think it came from there. It was two places. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I know what you mean. I I used to love getting them and just I looked at the pictures. <laughs> I didn't read as much, but uh, <laughs> but that's where you know I kind of the passion for cattle and genetics for me kind of started. So so I understand. So. It's part of the reason I wanted to bring bring you on today was to, to talk about a book that you uh, recently wrote and published. You know, it's uh, it's a story of of an artist and and his life and his life's work. and And I got to tell you, I mean, I, I after reading through it and everything, I just uh, I'm shocked that I I haven't seen his work before. But here in the East, I probably could have missed it. But um, tell us a little bit about, I, I guess, what uh, the beginnings of that and and how you met Hollis and, and maybe who he was. And, and we'll kind of get into the book here in a minute. Yeah. So Hollis Williford was was uh, among the most important Western artists of the last I don't know, 25, 30 years of the, of the 20th century. He passed away in 2007. But at that point, he was he was a he was diabetic, had a lot of health issues, was in was in decline. But he he had a run in from about 1980 till about 1990 with the National Cowboy 
uh, and Western Heritage Museum, they have they have an event called the Prix de West, where all of the best Western artists come together each year with their best work from the from that year for a giant exhibit. And if if if, if your listeners have never been to that, they need to go. It's in Oklahoma City in June. Um, if you love Western art, the, but but Hollis um, during that decade won the Prix de West, which is the highest award given um, at that at that event twice. And I think he's one of maybe four or five artists that have received that level of recognition. The Prix de West has been around since the early 1970s. So, um, But he was very, very well done, particularly in the 80s and the early 90s. Um, and then his health problems kind of took him off, uh, off, I don't want to say off focus, but but took took some of the wind out of his sails from a creative standpoint. And he wasn't creating quite as much to the degree he was in the 80s. It's kind of a strange story. And I think it's 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 kind of one of those examples how sometimes you just follow your inspiration and it kind of wind wind up with a kind of a life changing event. I was had just purchased a home in in Northwest Denver and was out just looking around for stuff to put in it. You know, we all do that, and and stumbled into this antique shop, and on the wall behind the cash register, this would have been in 1992, September 1992. There was an etching um, of a wagon train, framed etching. And I thought, oh, that'll look cool. So um, I bought it and took it home, never thought anything of it, hung it on the wall, walked away. A couple months later, I was um, thinking about it. I thought, I wonder if that guy's still around. And uh, so I started calling information, you know, different galleries and things. And back then you couldn't Google um, to find stuff. So um, one of the galleries in Scottsdale, Arizona, I talked to a gentleman there. He He said, hey, I think Hollis actually lives north of Denver, just not too far from me. Here's here's his number or something like that. Anyway, I called called him, and there's this wonderful Texas voice on the other other end of the line, and we talked a little bit. I said, you know, Mr. Wilford, I bought one of your etchings and uh, would love to have a few more, and would love to meet you in person. And uh, um, he invited me to come up that night, so I uh, loaded up and headed up and uh, pulled into his driveway. It was very dark. It was early November, and it was very, very dark. And uh, I remember getting out of the car and not sure which door to go into. They had kind of a large studio on the north end of the building, and the main entry of the house is on the left. But I went over to the studio, and I looked through these wagon wheel windows, you know, to see if I was in the right place. And there was this giant, um, giant uh, statue that he was working on. Um, it was Welcome Sundown, thirteen feet tall. Um, he was just nearing completion on it. And I thought, holy crap, this guy's a little bit more than just an etcher. And uh, for those of you who've been to the National uh, Cowboy Western Heritage Museum, it's it's the bronze monument that stands at the entryway of the Cowboy Museum. And so that was my first exposure to him. I uh, went into his house and we visited and he had a bunch of etchings laid out on his table and, and I ended up buying several more. and We became friends. Drove home that night thinking about what I had just experienced, and his 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 house and his studio were like a Western museum. I mean, he had artifacts, you know, Indian artifacts and cavalry cavalry and artifacts, old guns, you know, old <laughs> weaponry, you name it, you know, headdresses, um, everything. Uh, it was it was just crazy. I'd never seen anything like it, and he was quite the collector. But I I went home the next morning and I I wrote this letter, and it was. The greatest thing I ever wrote, and I don't even know where it came from, uh, sent it off to him. 
and uh, kind of waited it out. And a couple of weeks later, we touched base again, and he said, "Hey, I, I appreciate the letter. Um, have you? I would like for you to come up and um, talk to you about you writing my biography." So now, now it's getting real. Well, and and so he determined that from from the letter you wrote. Yeah, it was a good letter. <laughs> <laughs> it had to be. It had to be. I mean, uh, honestly, well, I don't know where it came from. I just I was so inspired by what I'd seen. Yeah, uh, but it changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. So what was what was sort of the? I mean, it was not too personal. What was sort of the the gist of the letter? I mean, what was it, was kind of your your you know your feedback for him or the reason for it? It talked about my own experience in the West and my places in the West and how how going to those places um, inspires me in the way that his work does. And that I felt a deep connection with his artwork and also with the things that I had seen as a, as a writer and photographer up until that point. Oh, wow. Interesting. And so had you, had you been sort of a lover of Western art up to that point or did this really um, capture your attention and make you, you know, really get into it deeper and more? Yeah, I can't say that I was really a a, a lover or a collector of, of art. Um, I mean, just like anybody in the ranching business, we all have appreciation for the, you know, Charles Russell and Frederick Remington and all those kinds of great artists because they define kind of who we are and they, they, they made a tremendous contribution to defining what the American spirit is. Um, but I can't say it. I really knew that much about art. Um, but all of a sudden I'm thrown into this, this world that I didn't expect to find, you know, this, this kind of world of, of creation. Um, and, you know, Hollis and I, from that point, after he invi- invited me back up, we met, I brought some writing samples up for him and, and, uh, they, you know, they were, they were okay, but good enough to, for, for us to proceed. Um, but I spent the next five, six years, uh, hanging around his studio and, um, interviewing him. He was an interesting guy. I mean, he, you know, he'd, he'd get into these agitated states, um, and you knew that he was on the verge of creating something. So he'd just get out of his way, you know? But he was also a very kind and supportive guy and people that knew him really loved him and they loved his work. And you don't see a lot of his work come on the market because people have held on to it because I think it's part of their way of holding on to him. Um, but, you know, in, in some respects, his his the way he lived his life, it was like the Old West actually never died. And by that, I mean, he had the stream of of of, of people. I mean... Indians would come off the reservation to come down, you know, in the middle of the night to to model for him the next day, you know, sleep in their car out in front of their house. And, and, uh, you know, and he was always out among them and, uh, he was never, um, really big on doing horses or cowboys, which in some ways it was kind of ironic that his biggest, best known work stands in front of the national cowboy museum as, and as a cowboy, but he was really into native American subjects and uh like to take the deep dive into the history of, of north america i mean he he did work that ref, uh, reflected of the inuits and in north you know up, up, up above the arctic circle the athabascans all the way down to the to the apaches um in southwest united states i mean he he was very very but his work in some ways he was also like an old style ethnographer i mean he, he uh 
his work is very, very well researched and and very authentic, authentic to the history of the people. And uh, so, if you see a Hollis Williford work, you know that it's been thoroughly researched, and everything about that piece is going to be an accurate reflection of the people that he was trying to represent. Yeah, I know. Just looking through the book, I mean, you, when you first receive it, it's. Um... You know, you sort of look at it and you're like, oh, here's another sort of coffee table book, right? Full of the artist's work and stuff like that. But but reading through it, I mean, the content in it and, and the story of, of him and and the way you've, you've laid it out into different different pieces is, uh, I mean, you just I couldn't put it down when I when I started looking through it and reading it. And and uh, the sculptures really, I mean, I thought just amazing i mean just some of those were were unbelievable and and um you know the when you talked about um welcome sundown uh, you know that picture you have in here in the book of him you know standing up there working on it is just i mean it's like a you know it's, it's an amazing piece for sure and so um so I, you know i encourage people as, as you look through it it's not just a a book of his art and pictures of his art it's really the story of of his life and and um and how he how he went out and researched a lot a lot of these things i thought was really interesting too and i think um the one thing that that when you said a minute ago that he captured a lot of native americans native people in their own environment you know there's for a lot of us we never get to see that right and to be able to bring that to life so we can is was pretty cool for me, I guess, as I looked through a lot of those, a lot of those things. You know, he 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 had a deep connection to all those things. And it really goes back to when he was a, a boy growing up in Texas and um became involved in the Boy Scouts and the the there was an Indian dance group that he became a part of, and that was what really inspired him. But his in some ways, uh I, you know, there are a lot of parallels between my life and his, and he he kind of toggled between living in town and going to the farm or the ranch, and you know when he when he could break away and didn't like living in town, wanted to be out on the farm. And his his grandpa, in the same way that that my grandpa did, kind of inspired him to to see things that maybe he wouldn't have wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and I think you know all of us uh, should never underestimate the role that the impact we can have on, on kids, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I struggled, uh, for six years to, to write this book in the nineties. And, and, you know, I, I made a living as a writer and, and could write, write well enough to get a check for it, you know, but every time I sat down to write this, this book, um, I just couldn't get the words to match what the inspiration I was feeling. Um, and so the, you know, I failed and, um, the project fizzled and, um, you know, but I just kind of walked away from it. Um, he was a big subject and, and, you know, in retrospect, you know, a lot of people have told me that it's very, very difficult to write a book about an artist while the artist is still living because they, they have, they have different goals, different ideas on what they want to accomplish. Not that Hollis was micromanaging me or anything. I just felt very, um, you know, I don't know kind of intimidated by everything that I tried to write about him and didn't feel like I was hitting the mark. But I carried this around for a long time. And it was probably one an hour that would go by that I wasn't thinking about, you know, this miserable failure of my life not getting this thing done. So in um 2020, 2021, 
I started seeing the destruction of public art. And I, when I say that, a lot of people immediately go to, oh, they're, you're, you're talking about the Confederate statues. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I'm talking about public art. Now, a, a great example would be that, that Van Gogh painting that, that those two activists threw tomato soup on here, I don't know, five, six months ago. I mean, Hollis always talked about how public art is all, or art is always a, among the first things to get destroyed when you have revolutions, you know, um, because you want to destroy all the symbols of what the previous or the existing or the established culture embraces or or exists, like or, you know, and and I and I became worried about it, and and I think there was one one day where I saw that this this uh, riot had toppled a statue of Ulysses S. Grant. Um, you know, and I uh, thought, gosh, you know, this is really unfortunate. You know, and they dragged around town. I think it was in San Francisco, and uh, kind of internalized it. And that night, uh, right around three a.m., I woke up, kind of like, oh my god, what if all of a sudden a mob showed up and said that the symbol of the cowboy was racist and needed to be toppled, and uh, not that there's any imminent going to happen down in Oklahoma City, but but it, it did make me worried. And I thought, uh, I have to find a way to preserve and protect Hollis's memory. I finally got to get off my butt and and do this. So I uh, basically loaded everything up that I had rel- relating to uh, my work with Hollis, including I had all the old transcripts. And I drove to Oklahoma City, and I and I camped out in a in a hotel room down there, and uh, determined that I was not going to come home until I wrote wrote the at least some first manuscript. Got up every morning at four a.m. and I wrote until ten, with the goal of writing you know three to four thousand words. And I think within eight days, I had a completed manuscript, and finally got it done. So. And that was such a relief uh, to finally have that not gnawing on me anymore. Right. Yeah. That burden of of completion. Right. And, you know, it's one of those things that's like sits there and goes, you know, you just remind you every day that you need to you need to finish something you started. And I think that's just our nature. Right. No matter what it is that we have to we have to finish some things we started. And that's what I mean, that's what the, you know, the culture we grew up in was. Right, you don't start something without finishing it, and uh, and and I can see why that would gnaw at you. So, you 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 wrote until ten, and then you went to the to the museum and looked at art, and it continued to inspire you to continue to write. Yeah, and I had access to the archives there too. And Hollis had Hollis's family had had donated quite a bit of materials. And at that time, I I, I didn't know if any of his fam- direct family was even still alive or not, and. Uh, I did want to give them the heads up that I was working on the book again until I actually got it done, you know, at least a manuscript. And uh, so, yeah, I would write until 10 um, and then load up and and head over to the museum and uh, be in the presence of some of the greatest Western art in the world. Um, and uh, and then kind of load up mentally and, and then the next morning start in and on it again. And so at what point did you tell the family and, and how did they sort of receive that you were, you'd worked on it? Yeah. So one of the really great things about 
you know, creating grant company was that I have this super talented team of people to work with. And, and so I brought the manuscript home and, uh, you know, immediately started getting their feedback, the team, the team's feedback on the manuscript. And, you know, Crystal Albers, um, who's a great writer in her own right. I mean, she had been very instrumental in, in helping me to, um, to, kind of bring the thing into focus of, at the initial stages of writing, but also reviewing, challenging the manuscript. You've got to have people that are going to challenge the words that you write, you know, and uh, Anna McCrell, Diane Meyer, um, you know, I'm just going to write on the list, but, but had a lot of, a lot of people looking at it and challenging. And so once, once they kind of had a chance to look it over, then I felt confident. Okay. So I'm going to start looking to see if the family's still around and, uh, Found Ronnie, his brother. Ronnie's also um, a great artist in his own right. Uh, Ronnie's a, um, worked with Hollis for many years, um, and uh, became an animator with Walt Disney. And he animated a lot of movies like Milan and and Hunchback of Notre Dame and Brother Bear and a few of those. I mean, he he's a really really great artist and now he's on his own doing his own thing which is just wonderful but he was the first person i sent the manuscript to and and uh and then i reached out to uh, to hollis's uh, uh wife who lives in arizona and uh initially she wasn't too hot on the idea of doing it but i you know she still owns um williford arts ltd and uh you know needed to get her support behind the book because honestly we couldn't because of uh copyright laws we couldn't even include a single picture of his work without without her support and acknowledgement and and uh but once uh once we started um kind of coming up with some of the conceptual designs of what the book might look like when that happened then all of a sudden everything just flipped this the book um started really getting legs and it was it became really a, a community effort i mean i I think we probably had 30, 35 people involved in the book at any given time, you know, proofreading, designing. Um, Bart Ashford, who uh creative director with Grant Company, did the design on it, did a wonderful job. And uh, um, he's a really gifted designer, kind of kind of shared my vision for what I wanted it to look like, which was not like any other art book. It was really important that it, that it be that way. And I should also add, that the writing as i was writing one of the one of the liberating aspects of writing a book was that every art book i'd ever read was written by some phd at a university and it's like god this is just i can't <laughs> no way i could ever do this and plus it's really really boring so i decided to write the book in short form just small chunks you know 500 700 words that anybody can open the book and read something and get something from it if they want to read it if not they can look at pictures um but it's uh it's not written like a typical biography. I didn't want to do what everybody else has done as far as art books. So it, it does have a different feel and a different sensibility. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, that's probably why I've never read uh, another art book <laughs> in my life. But um, but no, I I got that from it, and and I thought it was interesting and and very just very simple and easy to understand. And and you put it into different segments and the the to do and to teach and different ones like that. And so what, I mean, what made you decide to, to break it up like that? I mean, it, it, is it something that uh, Hollis had done or something um, that you decided that was the best way to do it? There's a book called Custer 
by Larry McMurtry, who had written Lonesome Dove. And I was listening to the audio book and, and he, he had written this book, this essentially biography about Custer, but he, but it was written in short form and uh, just short, punchy little essays. And I was listening to that audio book a few days before I headed to Oklahoma city. And it was really kind of one of those moments where you go, Oh yeah. Okay. Um, I don't have to follow anybody else's rules. This is my damn book. I don't have to write, you know, Hollis Williford was born on October 31, 1940, and blah, 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 you know, and go from there all the way to the end. I could do it the way I want to do it. I thought to myself, I'm just going to make each of these chapters kind of like a, a painting, um, an impression of his life. They don't have to have every detail of his life to understand who he was. Um, and that was really, really liberating because, you know, being an old magazine writer, you know, my brain shuts off 1,200 words. There's no way I can just write and write and write, you know, continuously for 200,000, you know, and, and knowing I didn't have to write Moby Dick was, uh, was very liberating. So I wrote until I felt like, uh, you know, we've got, we've got enough material here that people can understand who he was and we've covered it. So. And I noticed there were a lot of quotes in there. Was that sort of stuff that you, you had uh, written down in your time together or was that some stuff that was in the archives? I mean, where did, where did a lot of those come from? Yeah, so there's two two voices in the book. One is mine and one is Hollis's. So uh, a lot of the work that we included also includes these paragraphs there in, in italics uh, that Hollis wrote about the specific works. So there's a lot of great information in there about, uh, about you know, 18th, 19th century America and the people that inhabited, you know, this this these lands. That Hollis pulled together, and I and I wanted to uh, retain those things, uh, but I also had the transcripts from the interviews that I had, that I'd done with Hollis. I had hundreds of pages of of quotes that I could work from, plus interviews with other artists that I had talked to as well. Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by BRC Brahmins. BRC has created their own legacy by taking their time-tested bloodlines, breed-leading performance and classic style into uncharted territories of genomic excellence and premium marbling, arriving as the unmistakable leader of destination in the modern American Brahmin. For more information and their upcoming events, visit brcoutrer.com. That's B-R-C-U-T-R-E-R.com. So as you went through the book and and um, and and got to look at the art, did you know just from an Eric Grant standpoint, you know what pieces sort of do you remember most? Uh, what ones that did you enjoy the most or or captivate you the most? in as you went through it, well, I would uh, I would have any of those in it in in any of his work in in my collection, which is small but growing all the time. There's a there's a couple. One one would be the snake priest, which is the the uh, bronze that won the Prix de West in 1980. Um, that that is a miraculous piece, and they actually have it on display now at the National Cowboy Museum. If you get a chance to go see it, it's uh, it's it's breathtaking. I, I got to tell you, that's the one that when I first when I flipped the page and saw that, I was like, wow. I mean that 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 I agree with you. That was the one that. Just for me, it was just like, man, this one's amazing. 
yeah. started Googling to see if you could find any <laughs> any uh, replicas or anything like that. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, so Snake Breeze would be right up there. Um, he did, um, as part of his down payment, he, he was interested. He, he was kind of a horse trader, you know. And uh, so he, he traded a, a painting to me as kind of a down payment uh, on, on my writing the book. And when I wasn't able to complete it, I gave it back to, uh, to Debbie, his, his wife. I'm like, I, I can't keep it, you know? And, uh, but uh, when I did complete it, I went to, to Debbie's home and in, in uh, Arizona, she, uh, she gave it back to me. So um, that by far among anything I've ever or will own in my lifetime is, uh, is, is the thing that probably means, and it's a, it's a painting of a herd of Buffalo and it hangs in a very prominent place in my house. And uh, every time I walk by it, I touch the lower right-hand corner of the frame. And uh, it's kind of my, my touchstone every morning just to remind me of, you know, keep, keep after it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there, there's, there's a number of, 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 of his, he's really known for his, his bronze, but his paintings um, are kind of uh, maybe a little initially when you see them, they're a little overpowered by his bronze sculpture. But when you when you really study uh, Hollis's paintings, there, there's some really incredible paintings that he did. Um, but he he was very fundamentally focused on the fundamentals of art and he was all about drawing and uh, drawing was the basis of, of everything, whether it was uh, getting into sculpture or, or, or painting. And he was, he was just an absolutely incredible draftsman. He could, and uh, he was uh, studied at uh, um, art center uh, college of design out in Los Angeles. And uh, you know, he, he had some great training and uh, boy, could he, he could really draw and he drew, and he drew all the time. And one, actually, you know, one of the challenges that we had as we were pulling together the, the book was um, we went out to see Debbie and she has a lot of her, his, his drawings, his artwork and archives there. And, and <clears throat> you know, you start going through Tupperware tubs that weigh, you know, 100 pounds each of just drawings. You start to get a sense of the magnitude of this guy's commitment to art. I mean, he basically worked himself to death. And, uh, you know, your back gets sore after you're stooping down and lifting one drawing out and setting it down, taking a picture of it. You do that for a couple of hours, you really get a sense for, for, you know, how committed he was to to it. It was it. it I mean, his fingers are stained with with charcoal, and and you're just worn out. Um, and William scratched the surface. I mean, we could have included this book. Could have been like the Encyclopedia Britannica if we wanted to include all of his work. He just never stopped. I got the sense from the book that, you know, he was somewhat of a perfectionist in capturing the, um, you know, the real life look of the subject, right? Whatever that was. And he would just work on it and study it and work on it and study it and draw it and redraw it and until he kind of got where he wanted. He felt like it was the, you know, the best depiction of, of, of the subject that he, that he could get. I mean, it just seemed like that was, you know, that was he was just so intent on capturing the actual essence of, of the, the subject in his in his work. And and uh, and that's what I got. I mean, I, it if that's what if that was your intention in the book that's what I, I sure got out of you know reading through it yeah you can't help but not read the book and say size up your own life a little bit and you know going back to kind of the the initial writing of it here a couple of years ago i was sitting 
with 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 Crystal Albers and trying to get a she's really great uh, sounding board on 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 clarity. And she she said, well, one of the things that he wanted to accomplish with the book and and came down to really just a handful of things. One was he wanted he wanted to inspire kids to know that they can come from anywhere and any situation and and have a creative productive life. And I think that 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 is really an important message today. You know, we've got kids that are just immersed in their iPhones and they've forgotten that they can make a creative contribution too, but it takes hard work, you know? And, uh, and I think, I think Hollis, you know, who had a, had a difficult, um, childhood, difficult, but you know, there were good things about it too, but, but, but he came from nowhere, you know, he came from the cotton fields and of, of, of Texas and, you know, in the 1940s and 50s and it wasn't a real prosperous place to become one of the great artists uh, in america you know <clears throat> i was with his brother the other day ronnie uh, in florida and we were talking about you know kind of this this whole idea of could anybody um do what you do and uh ronnie you know he probably danced around it a little bit, but basically, you know, if, if you're willing to work at it, you can do whatever you want to do with your life is what I think both he and, and, and Ronnie have said, you know, I think a lot of it's God given ability. I mean, you know, understanding light and composition and those kinds of things, but, but, uh, but people can apply themselves and they can achieve great things with their lives. And then more importantly, Ensure the next generation's inspired to do the same thing. And uh, that that is really critical. Yeah, I noticed one section you titled uh, To Live, right? And it seemed like that was almost a, a theme through the whole the whole book, right? Is is find that thing that you love to do and do it and and be good at it and you know, if you, if you make money great or if you don't make money or whatever, but it just seemed like he just, he, he did it because he loved to do it and he did it to, I don't know, contribute to society or whatever the right word is, but he, he seemed to want to be able to capture those things that, you know, were, were failing and, and not going to be around forever. Right. So we could, you and I can look at it later and, and think, wow, this was really, you know, an era in history that uh that uh has gone and we we and he at least captured some of it so we can you know get a glimpse of what it was like symbols and art are important um because they anchor people to their society you know they give you a sense of permanence and sense of hope and a sense of inspiration and um you know he he always talked to about how there's been more bronze monuments melted down to make cannonballs, you know, um, the destructive impulses that people have um, are stabilized by creating things, creating things that benefit other people, you know. And uh, there's an interesting photo um, of Hollis in the book um, of him s sitting. Uh, at the lion with the lions in Trafalgar Square in London, and those those bronze monuments was actually the opposite. Um, those those bronze bronze monuments were made from uh, French 
and Spanish cannon cannons um, that the uh, the British uh, captured after the Battle of Trafalgar and and made into those lines. Well, you know, and that's kind of the the heart of of London and the and kind of the one of the really important places for Western society and Western civilization. And uh, but but yeah, you know, this destructive impulse I think was was what frightened me and and motivated me to do this. Um, you know, I think in 2020, 21, it was very disorienting what was happening in our in our society and 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 we needed to find a way, or at least I needed to find a way to kind of preserve that and anchor um, myself back to to this great body work this guy had created and make my own contribution to to steadying the boat, I guess. Um, and I think since the book has come out, it's it's amazing to me. I think the so the ironic the ironic aspect of writing a book like this is that in a way you're you're writing your own biography. You're you know you're you're writing your own your own story. You're adding to your own story, which is something I didn't expect. And people have just crawled out of the woodwork that I never would have known um, um, otherwise. And my network of friends and colleagues has has expanded exponentially as a result of doing this. And it's a really good, positive thing. Um, Just yesterday, you know, uh, as an example, I got a university of Chicago library, bought a copy of the book, you know, why, why, well, how did they find out about it? You know, cause I'm really that much. You just never know. You come in every day and there's something, there's a surprise like that. Robert Duvall, the, you know, the famous actor, he's, he got a book and, you know, just crazy. Uh, you just, you just, he lives out there in Virginia. I'm sure, I'm sure you know that, but yeah. Yeah. I, he, I go up and have coffee with him every now and then. Yeah. I'm, I'm kidding now. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I'm talking to Chandler Keys, you know, he, uh, his dad, Gordy and, and uh, Robert Duvall were good friends. And, um, but ironically, uh, the, the welcome sundown was inspired by uh, Lonesome Dove. And uh, I think Robert had kn- known of that connection. And, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just crazy, you know, and it put a little, put something good out in the world. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's awesome. And I think that's, that's so true that, you know, when you, when you do that and you take a little bit of a risk and some vulnerability, right. Um, mm-hmm. you make yourself a little vulnerable in, in some of your work and some of that, that you just never know, uh, you know, who it's going to inspire. Uh, who's going to touch and and who's going to bring into your circle and and we've seen that not nearly on the elegant level that that you've uh, put into this book and Hollis has but even with the podcast I mean it's we get feedback all the time of of the stories and it's nothing I've done other than have guys like yourself you know on a on a little radio and we put the story out and and you just never know who's going to relate to it and who's going to uh, get inspired by it and who's going to enjoy it. And I think that's, um, that's, that's a really cool thing, Eric. And I, I appreciate you doing that. I appreciate you sending me a copy. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and, and, um, it will be one of the, my favorite pieces in my office, um, that, uh, that you've given me. And so it's, it's a gift, um, for me, uh, because it, I didn't, I knew you'd done it, 
and I didn't know what the content was or anything like that. And it wasn't until I got it that, uh, that you see the, the amount of work and, and, um, focus and dedication it took to, to put something like that out. And I applaud you for it. And I think it's really cool. Well, I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, it's not ever going to be a commercial success. Um, the number of hours that we, you know, took from the moment I wrote that, that, that first manuscript, I mean, it took two years to put it all together, to find all the photos, to, uh, you know, do a fact check and, you know, all that, all that stuff that we did, proofread, edit, rewrite. But yeah, I, I think, you know, rural America, I think, um, can use more risk taking. And, uh, you know, you mentioned your podcast, you know, you stick your neck out and do this kind of stuff. And, but I think it's good for people to do it. I think I think we tend to play a little safe in our in our business. Um, we tend to kind of fall in line, you know. And I think it, you know, as a as a writer in our business, um, you, you you tend to write what's expected of you, not not push people um, out of their comfort zone. And um, and I do think it is good for ranchers and people in the cattle businesses to stop once in a while and kind of celebrate their heritage heritage to understand that what they do is a symbol of this great country. Um, but also to understand that we're vulnerable, uh, you know, as a symbol. Um, and we need to protect that as much as we can. Um, because, you know, the forces that are against us, um, you know, very much would like artwork would like to see that symbol destroyed. And, uh, you know, the principles of private ownership and entrepreneurship and risk taking and uh, producing food, uh, all, all, and using natural resources to produce food, all those kinds of things um, kind of tie back to the, th- the themes of this book, really, in a lot of respects. But we have so many good things to celebrate about who we are as an industry. And, and gosh, you know, I, I think about, I mean, you're in the genomics world. And I mean, you know, I think about where we were, you know, even 20 years ago with uh, cattle selection and breeding decisions and how far these cattle have come and what we're able to do with fewer cattle all the time, but we're, we're, we're increasing demand for our product and our product keeps getting better. Uh, Worldwide people want what we have. And, uh, but I think at the foundations of that is, is this idea that there are real people out there creating this great thing. Yeah. I've, I've talked to some friends recently just about the, um, just that God given, I don't know, desire to create that we have. Right. And whether it's, it's, you know, if you're in animal breeding and you're, and you're trying to create a, a better animal or a plant or, or, or like you do with creating, uh, and writing and, 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 and Hollis did with art. It's just that there's just something in us that, that we long to create something right. And see that sort of finished work that, uh, that we did. And I, and I think about that from, you know, just, you know, creation in, in itself. Right. I mean, it's just, we have that, that God given sort of, um, um, desire to create and, and, uh, it kind of put us, put people in, in two categories these days. It's sort of the producers and the consumers, right? And, um, and we're all on the producer side. We produce things and create things. People build houses 
you know, people, you know, just those, those, you know, just those desires to complete those things and create those things. I think it's really neat. And you can look around and see it everywhere in, in all that you do, really. So it's kind of, kind of neat stuff. Yeah. And it's early February uh, while we're doing this recording. And uh, what, the next 90 days, probably 60, 65% of the, the calves will be born in the, in the, in the beef, U.S. beef business. And every one of those, I mean, everybody's is, is something that, that every, every rancher anticipates. I want to see how that calf's going to turn out because it took so long to get there. And, uh, I, I, I do think that, you know, going back to my grandpa, um, you know, in his own way, he was kind of an artist. I mean, animal breeders, um, are, are artists and they, they set out, they have a vision for what they want and they go out to create it. And, um, you know, so it's it's a creative activity, not just a, not just a scientific, um, you know, activity. Well, and and you take show rings on top of that, right? It allows some of us to sit back and appreciate uh, what some others have created, and 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 the beauty in that, right? I mean, we we've you know designed some of these cattle to be really pretty, and and we enjoy that, and and so um, so yeah, I think that's all. I agree. I think there's a there's some form of art in that, and so that's kind of cool. So, so Eric, um, you know, as we as we sort of wrap things up, if somebody wanted to get a copy of the book, um, get in touch and and kind of do that, how would they do that? Yeah, so they can just go to uh, Hollis Williford, and that's H O L L I S W I L L I F O R D hollisworthford.com they can order the book there um and if they if they want to we have a coupon just jim j i m in your honor uh they can get uh, $50 off the book there if they want that and we'll ship it right out to them signed copy and uh and if they if they don't have any interest in in art uh, but still think maybe their local elementary or high school library might be able to use a copy you know that's one of the things we're trying to do is get this book out in front of uh of of kids um to be inspired to to do great things with their lives really really neat um so i was wondering i was wondering if you were going to do something like that that's cool um so hollis williford we'll have that in the show notes um so if anybody uh, listen to this and then go to the show notes uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's Spotify or Apple or Google or wherever. So we'll have that in the show notes, Hollis, com, And be sure to um, put in uh, the, the word Jim and uh, get $50 off and, and we'll, Eric will know if you're listening to the podcast. And so um, that's awesome. So what's next for Eric Grant and the Grant Company? Well. Um, it's kind of a pre-book and post-book life for me, so I haven't quite figured out what that part of my life looks like. But I'm enjoying getting the book in the hands of people that that uh, that are enjoying the book. Um, our our business, um, you know, we we have, I think, the best. Well, no, I don't think. I, I know we have the we have the most talented group of people that I've ever had the honor of working with, and we're really. Um, excited about where we are as a company and um looking you know we do uh, last year we did 150 video and photo shoots around the country so we went everywhere from from new hampshire to hawaii washington to florida i think we were in and out of 35 states so we probably get to see about a, a, 
as much of America as as anybody, and um, love that. I love that about our our job. Um, but I think as we go forward with Grant Company, I think we're in the process of developing a, a documentary series um, and uh, looking at building up enough of those things to where we can go to like a Netflix or a, someone something like that, and where we can where where we can share that those documentaries. Um, we uh, we're producing two separate kinds of documentaries. One just on American history. And the other one is on American artists and uh, kind of building on that theme. So that's that's a big thing. The other thing is we're just, you know, taking care of the clients that we have and making sure we're we're delivering what we promised and uh, and and trying to trying to make everybody's life a little bit better. When you get one of those out, we'll have to have you back on. That'd be that sounds awesome. I know you're a big history buff. I know I know that uh, as I've gotten to know you over the years and just enjoy listening to your stories of what happened here and what happened there and 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 all those things. And so, uh, bigger than me, that's cool. So if 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 somebody listening happened to wanted want to um, use some of your services at, at Grant Company, how would they get in contact with you to do that? Yeah, appreciate you asking. Uh, my email address is eric at grantcompany.net. And just email me anytime. Uh, if you want to see what we do, it's just grantcompany.net. And uh, uh, you can see some of the work that we've done over the years. And, and uh, would love to love to meet with anybody who might be interested. Great. And we'll add that to the show notes too. So Eric, um, so what do you, um, if you look into your crystal ball cattle business in the future, right what advice maybe do you have some listeners and and then maybe what uh challenges do you think uh we have in front of us that we that we might need to um to recognize and consider well there's a lot more people who are not in the cattle business than there are in the cattle business and i think that's probably our biggest challenge and opportunity um I think all of us. It seems. I think. I think cattle producers have become much better at, at telling their story. You hear that a lot. It's kind of a cliche anymore. But we can't let our guard down. We got to keep. We got to keep talking about the things that we do that are good for society. And uh, if we don't, you know, somebody else will tell it, and it's going to be on their terms. And uh, you know, so I think getting getting more and more information out um, in an engaging way. And then, and and in an authentic way, um, I think a lot of times, you know, companies, big companies, and um, big organizations tend to overmanage their message um, to where they kind of dial down the authenticity of what they're trying to convey. Um, people are really, really interested in what ranchers and feedlot people, managers and owners are doing, you know. And 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 show them in a very in, in a real realistic way what it is that you do and and that's as simple as you know maybe showing uh, cattle going through your hydraulic chute at your feed yard a video with your with your iPhone and throwing it out on Facebook you know those kinds of things are are authentic they're not overmanaged they're not overproduced but uh, some of those things get millions and millions of views and and um, you know it's kind of great for people to get a little window into what it is that we're doing. So I, I think that's big. I think, I think artificial intelligence, um, AI, not the artificial insemination that we're all familiar with, um, you know, from my standpoint, I think has a chance, uh, to really change a lot of the stuff that we're doing. We're still trying to figure out what that means. Um, 
you know, we use uh, um, we use AI to uh, help us write and edit now. I think AI is going to change the way cattle are marketed and processed and, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, we have no idea where it's going. It's kind of the genie out of the bottle, but it could be, it could go very, very negative. It could also go very, very positive. We just got to be involved in those things and kind of figure out where those technologies are leading, leading us. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think, um, Oh, I want to do, um, and I, I talked to you about, it, I want to do it at, at some point in time, um, sort of a brands and barbed wire round table with some experts and, and discuss some of those things. And, and that just gave me a good subject. I think that's a good, a good subject that people want to know sort of what's coming and, and discuss how we handle it and, and some of that. So that's, that's a good feedback. So, um, so Eric, I appreciate your time today. Um, the book is awesome. Um, we'll we'll have links to it and, and the grant company in, in the show notes. Uh, be sure to go to hollisweliford.com and get your book and, and be sure to uh, type in the word Jim and, and get your discount uh, for listening to the podcast. And uh, check out the grantcompany.net. And then uh, last thing is, uh, don't forget... Um, Stay tuned for our live Brands and Barbed Wire event in June. Uh, don't forget to, to keep listening and, and we'll reveal those uh, details as they come out. Eric, thanks for being on Brands and Barbed Wire. Thanks a lot, Jim. Appreciate it. For our producer, Carlos Cheriboga, I'm your host, Jim Johnson. God bless and thank you for listening to Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. You can also find additional content at our Brands and Barbed Wire Facebook page and at brandsandbarbedwire.com. We hope you enjoyed Brands and Barbed Wire. Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by Jmar Genetics. Visit jmargenetics.com for more information about our annual Charlotte Bull and Female Sales, where we offer the most comprehensive information available on our bulls including feed efficiency, performance testing, ultrasound, foot, and docility scores. JMAR Sired Bulls are topping sales across the U.S. and Canada. Check out jmargenetics.com to find the right JMAR herd sire for you.